0: Comes a legend, the legend of Voltron, defender of the universe. Five fearless lion robots Black Lion, Green Lion, Yellow Lion, Red Lion, Blue Lion. Joel, by force. Who together form Voltron. Okay. Lion sets each sold separately from Matchbox. <laughs> All right. Uh, how many of you guys remember Voltron? Yeah? Okay. How many actually got one of those? Uh, okay. All right. All right. So um, back in the 80s, I wanted one of those in the worst way. Never got one until this week. <laughs> all right. Here we go. This is my new black lion. Ooh, look at this. Whoa, look at this thing, okay, it's, you know, all, all the parts are movable, you can pose in any pose you want, okay? And then, and of course, this is the cool part. Activate laser blade! Oh, try again. All right, this is so cool. Now, now here's the thing about, about black lines, and, and there's, there's actually four other ones, and they're all different, right? And they all do different kinds of things. They do different kinds of things, different powers, different weapons, different capabilities, But here's the thing to understand about these black lions is that they can come together. When you actually move them around in certain ways. Now, by the way, this is going to be the hardest part of the sermon. Remember how to do all this. Okay. So if you actually readjust them, you turn them so you get them ready to form one massive new super robot called Voltron. Okay. So here we go. Now, I actually don't have Voltron here. I just have the black line. It forms the head, and it forms the torso, and then if you actually go to the next slide, you'll see that these different other, other, other lines, they form the arm, left arm, right arm, the leg, and so forth, and they end up with Voltron, okay? It is totally awesome. <laughs> new weapon systems, new capabilities. Now, today's talk is not on the influence of Japanese animation on 80s pop culture. Uh, today, actually, I'm actually talking about worship, so uh, I'm going to leave it to you to try to figure out how Voltron connects with worship. So, before I keep going, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. Um, I want to greet those of you watching online and all of you joining us in person in all the various sites and venues. Uh, to the Chinese speakers, Dishong Jiaming Ping'an, and to everyone, welcome to Black Hawk Church. We're so very glad you're here. Now, this is the fifth and the final sermon series final sermon in our series called Homecoming, and, and we've been reading the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah tells a story about these ancient Israelites returning home after 70 years of being away. They come back to the ho- homeland of their ancestors, and they are rebuilding their lives, rebuilding their community. And Ezra and Nehemiah tells us that they begin to weave their identity, their priorities, their values into the fabric of their lives. And we are reading Ezra and Nehemiah together because... We too, it feels like, have been in exile in COVID land for over a year, and we are now beginning to rebuild our lives and our community, and we want to weave our values and our identity into the fabric of our lives. So uh, we started in May 2nd with the importance of knowing our story as the people of God, and then Pastor Chris talked about the Bible, right? reading the Bible, just core to who we are. Pastor Michael talked about the importance of using God's blueprint instead of the world's blueprint to rebuild so that we rebuild differently. Last week, Pastor Matt, confession, right? Not just for ourselves, but corporate confession, confessing for the sins of the entire community, a very biblical concept. And today, worship. Worship. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3. Now we're at the very beginning of Ezra Nehemiah. We're right when the exiles they arrive in Jerusalem. Now, a little bit of kind of a quick summary of the story so far. God creates a kingdom called ancient Israel. Well, the people his people rebel against him. So God uses Babylon to destroy the kingdom and they took a whole bunch of them to Babylon. 70 years later, Seventy years later, Babylonian Empire is gone. The Persians take over, and the Persians decide to send the ancient Israelites back to their homeland. And so that's what chapter 1 is about. Chapter 1 is about this major change, and then 50,000 ancient Israelites decide to make the trip... 900 miles, four months, and they travel from Babylon to Jerusalem. So if you have Ezra open, you'll see in chapter 2, they give you—I mean, it's a big deal to make this trip. So they actually list all the names of the families. Like, just like, whoa, names after names, because like, hey, we made the trip, folks. We're we going to get ourselves in there. All right, so names after names after names, and you get all the way to the end of chapter 2, you have this, a few verses where they get there, and the first thing they do is they go to the temple where the temple used to be, and they started reserving resources, because we're going to rebuild the temple. Okay So we're going to pick up in chapter three, verse one. Chapter three, verse one. When the seventh month came okay, let me just stop right there. Um, this is not our seventh month. This is not July. Uh, they're using the, uh, a Jewish calendar as, as a lunar calendar. It's roughly usually in September or October, so that's one thing to know. But the big question is, why does the editor put in when the seventh month came? Why why is the seventh month important? So so here's one of those things where here at Blackhawk, we always say, hey, the Bible's not written to us, but for us. And um, Ezra Nehemiah is written to people who, when they read this, they would go, oh, the seventh month. Well, but of course, that makes total sense. Whereas most of us are going, huh? So... For those of you who have have Jewish background, you get this, right? You know about the seventh month. It's the month of Tishrei, and it's a doozy of a month. Uh, Let's go back a thousand years. I want to show you a text from Leviticus chapter 23. This is a thousand years before Ezra and Nehemiah. We're at the beginning of the story of the people of God. This is God talking to Moses, and he's he's establishing the Jewish religious calendar. So, uh, verse 23, Yahweh, when you see the word LORD in all caps in your English Bibles, that's God's personal name, Yahweh. Yahweh said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blast. Do no regular work, but present a food offering to Yahweh. So, for, no, come back, please. So the first day of the seventh month, right? That's like, it's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a na- national holiday. You do food offering, you do celebration, you have an assembly, you worship, This, you know, trumpet blasts, right? This eventually becomes what is known as Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, right? Jewish New Year happens in the seventh month, and you ask why? Long story, look it up on Wikipedia. But that's not all, okay? Next slide. Verse 26, Yahweh said to Moses, the 10th day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present a food offering to Yahweh. Do not do any work on that day because it is the day of atonement when atonement is made for you before Yahweh your God. So the 10th day of the same seventh month, you have the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. You heard of Yom Kippur, right? This is the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. This is the day when the high priest performs the day of atonement sacrifice. He takes the blood, he walks into the Holy of Holies, Right, this is the one, one day a year he does this. He walks into the Holy Holies and he sprinkles blood onto the Ark of the Covenant, making atonement for his people, reestablishing the relationship between God and his people. This is also the day when you have the scapegoat, in which the priest confesses the sins of the people onto a goat, and then they send the goat out into the wilderness, carrying away the sins of the people. Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, this is serious. This is massively important, and it happens in the seventh month. But wait, there's more. Yahweh said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month, Yahweh's festival of tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly, do no regular work. For seven days, present food offerings to Yahweh. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to Yahweh. It is the closing special assembly. Do no regular work. So on the 15th day of the seventh month, you have the Festival of Tabernacles or the Hag Sukkot. This is a seven-day celebration in which the people of God, they go out into the wilderness and they live in temporary shelters. And they do this as a reminder of their time in the wilderness after they escape from Egypt. Okay. And then, then it's, and after that's over, there's a one massive eighth day of celebration of corporate worship. It's called the Shemini Atzeret. So, think about this, okay? Just kind of th- think about the calendar in your head. Within the first 22 days of the seventh month, you have Rosh Hashanah, New Year. You have Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And you have Hak Sukkot. You have the Festival of Tabernacles. That would be like cramming Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's into a three-week period. Okay? That would be crazy intense. The seventh month is when the Jewish religious calendar kicks into high gear. Is it any surprise that the exiles, when they come back, they begin with the seventh month? Let's go back to Ezra and Nehemiah, chapter 3. When the seventh month came, now we know what that means. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua son of Jozadak, and his fellow priests and Zerubbabel son of Shealtiel and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to Yahweh, both the morning and evening sacrifices. And then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of Yahweh, as well as those brought as free will offerings to Yahweh. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to Yahweh, though the foundation of Yahweh's temple had not yet been laid. What's going on here? The people of God get there and they're saying, it's going to take some time to build a temple. You know what we need to do first? We need to gather to worship. We need to gather to worship. And what's going on there is, we're not just going to do the annual festivals, you know, the big ones, you know, like for us, Christmas, Easter. No, 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 no. There's going to be morning, evening sacrifice. That's daily. That's returning to daily worship, and daily prayer and worship. There's going to be weekly sacrifice. And then there's going to be new moon fest sacrifice. That's every month. We're going to go into regular Rhythm, we're going to reestablish this pace of worship because worship is the pulsing lifeblood of the people of God. Well, what about the temple? We're going to build a temple. So, so, so if you see verses, verses 7, 8, and 9, they start, worship, they start working on the temple. And by the time you get to verse 10, they have the foundation built. Okay, verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of Yahweh, the priests in their vestments and the trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise Yahweh as prescribed by David, king of Israel. Okay, so... The foundation's laid, now it's time for some serious worship, right? The priests, they're they're decked out in their vestments, and they got out their trumpets, they're all musicians, right? And you got the Levites, you got the cymbals, okay? And, And then there is this very curious phrase. They took their places to praise Yahweh as prescribed by David, king of Israel. Huh, what does that mean? Well, yes, we get. It's a reference to their past, right? David's like hundreds of years ago. But it's more than that, all right? Prescribed by David, king of Israel, would be, I think for us, you know, those of us who, who, who love musicals, it'd be like produced by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Okay, that's a little dated. Okay, maybe like today, would be like, hey, produced by Lin-Manuel Miranda, right? Uh, uh, but for, for us, my generation, all right, going to a musical produced by Andrew Lloyd Webber, that means something, right? You come to expect certain things, certain kind of staging, certain kind of lighting, certain kind of storytelling, certain kind of songs. Well, worship, prescribed by David, king of Israel, means certain things as well. So you see, when, 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 when God, God, when first talked to Moses about explaining how to do worship, right? He, he, he laid out some, some basic elements. And then, hundreds of years later, David comes along, and he takes what Moses has handed down, and he transforms it into opera. Yeah, David is the ancient Israelite version of Mozart. He is a musician, we all know that, right? He writes tons of songs. If you read through the book of Psalms, you will find a whole bunch of songs that says, of David, of David, of David. He writes music, he writes lyrics, but more than that. He's the one who connects songs and music to elements of worship. He's the one who puts music, musical score to aspects of the liturgy. So when you have the priest walking up to the altar, what song do you play in the background? He choreographs dances. He designs processions. He thinks about where the Levites should stand and what should the people say in response. He orchestrates the entire multimedia, multi-sense, sight, sound, and smell worship experience. But more than that, David is also an architect. That would be like if Mozart actually got into theater design. David designs the temple space for his son Solomon to build. And, and, and David designs it to fit his vision of worship. Okay. Now, those of you, we have people here who are, who are worship leaders. We have people in the, in the booth who are, who are tech people, and they think about staging. They think about light. They think about sound. They think about everything, the entire worship experience. And they do this, and they draw their inspiration from David. But what is the point of all this? Staging and orchestration and music and sound and standing and cymbals and trumpets. What is the point of all this? Verse 11. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to Yahweh. He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. So they're singing, and there are words here, right? And then... All the people gave a great shout of praise to Yahweh because the foundation of the house of Yahweh was laid. What is the point of all the staging and worship? It's so that the hearts of the people are moved. They're knitted together. They're united together and they're aligned with God. Worship is about the alignment of the people's heart with God. Now, the editor includes two more verses. And they're, they're curious verses, okay? I want, I want you to see this. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many of the others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Two things were going on, right? I mean, there's crying... And then there's cheering. The cheering was coming from the younger set. You know, they they got back to Jerusalem. They're like, yeah, we're finally back here. We heard about this place since we were kids. And we're back here, and we're building this temple. Yeah, super excited. And then you have the older set, the ones who actually remember the original temple. They were kids, right? And they're weeping. Now, people have different ideas of why they're weeping. One group of people say they're weeping because they saw the altar of this new, I mean, the the, the foundation of this new temple, and they're like totally not impressed. This is puny, it's pathetic compared to the original temple, and they're weeping. I tend to go the other way, which is how can you not be weeping? These are people. As kids, they watch the temple torn down brick by brick, stone by stone by the Babylonians, burned down. They suffer the trauma of being removed from their homeland, dragged 900 miles into a new place in Babylon. And they, decades, decades later, they come back to the same space. And they're watching the foundation of this temple being laid. How can you not be moved to tears? But you know what's interesting? Is that the editor actually doesn't tell us why they're weeping. The editor doesn't care. The editor says, focus on two things. One is that the cheering and the weeping are merged together. You can't separate them. And the next thing, this is the part that the editor really focuses on, is that it's loud. Right? It's noisy, and the sound was heard far away. It'd be like driving near Camp Randall on a game day or maybe within miles of an of a outdoor rock festival. It's loud, it's raucous. Because worship is about people being moved, their hearts and their minds being aligned with God, and they're engaged with God, and when that happens, it gets loud. So Ezra Nehemiah tells us that the ancient Israelites, when they come back, they prioritize worship as the top thing on their list. They gather resources to build a temple, they they restart the worship calendar, and they start working on the temple itself. As we move out of COVID land, we also want to prioritize worship and build it into the fabric of our lives. And to do that, we need to understand a bit more about what is worship. And to understand worship... We need to begin by understanding the concept of the temple. Why do the ancient Israelites focus so much on rebuilding the temple? So let's begin at the beginning. Beginning the story. Genesis chapter 2. After creating the universe, God plants a garden called the Garden of Eden. And there he invites the people that he created to live with him. And the idea is that they get to know each other, they get to trust each other, and they get to learn to love each other. That's God's plan. That doesn't work out so well. The the, the human beings, they decide to rebel against God. And so God kicks them out of Eden. And so the Bible begins with humanity in exile in a broken world. And then in this broken world, God comes along and establishes a new people, a kingdom ancient Israelites, okay? And they are to be God's people. Now, what does it mean to be God's people? Well, God tells them to build a box. Um, The box would look something like this. This is obviously not the real one, because the real one, the original one, was actually lost during the Babylonian invasion. Hasn't been seen since until it was rediscovered by that famous archaeologist, Indiana Jones, um, God also tells the people to build a tent, okay? And he says, put that box into the tent, inside the tent there. The box is where God chooses to make his home. This is his throne. He sits there, and he rules the world from that box, which means this tent is where God is present, okay? This is where God is present. And, 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 and so the question you're having is, wait a minute, um, How can God be present in the tent? Isn't God present everywhere? Yes, absolutely. The Bible teaches that God is everywhere. God is not limited by time or space. However, the Bible also teaches that God can choose a physical space and make that space where he is uniquely present in a way unlike any other space. So this tent is that space of God's unique presence. He's in community with his people. And the ancient Israelites are the people of God because God lives with them. Well, hundreds of years later, Solomon comes along and builds the temple complex. And so they take the box, the ark, out of the tent, and they put it somewhere back there in the temple building. So now the temple has replaced the tent. The temple is now the place of God's unique presence in the world. So imagine you're ancient Israelites. What would you see, what would you experience if you walk into the temple? Well, you wouldn't see the box, okay? Nobody gets to see the box except the high priest once a year, okay, back there. Nobody sees the box. What you would see is the altar where the animals are being sacrificed. And then you would come in to this magnificent building, and you would see all kinds of carvings on the wall, carvings of cherubim, which are spiritual beings who serve God in the divine realm. And you will see a lot of carvings about with trees and flowers. Okay? See, what's that for? Well, trees and flowers are supposed to remind you of a garden. And, now, and what kind of a garden is there where there are trees and flowers and cherubim, God's servants? Those of you who know your Bible, you know that this is the Garden of Eden. That's right. When you walk into the temple, you're supposed to say, hey, I'm walking into the Garden of Eden. This is a place where God lives with his people. And this is where worship happens. Worship happens. So what is worship in the temple? It is a set time and space, daily, weekly, monthly, annual festivals, where God's people come together to experience the presence of God. You have David's orchestration, you have all the songs and everything else. All of that is to bring people into a place where they are aligned with God. They're engaged with God with their whole person. My professor, my mentor, actually, Bruce Walkie, had this to say about um, worship. He said, He says, worship enables and enacts a meeting of the whole person with God. It aims to lead participants into a religious experience. Those who understand the structure of worship are engaged both emotionally and cognitively. Worship is a whole person engagement with God. Body, mind, soul, the whole person aligned with God, being transformed by God. That's worship in the temple. All right then, what is worship for us today? Well, let's notice the differences. First of all, we don't have a box. We don't have the Ark of the Covenant hiding back there somewhere where Chris goes in there once, once a year. Okay, don't have one of those. We also don't have an altar. That's because, as far as I know, Black Hawk Church, we have never actually sacrificed an animal. Good thing. We actually don't have a physical temple. The building you're sitting in, this is not the temple. We don't have a physical temple. That's really the biggest difference. That's because in the New Testament, the temple is actually the people of God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, for we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Okay, you see that, right? We're the temple. What does the temple mean? God lives with us. That's the definition of the temple. What is the temple? The place where God lives with his people. That's the definition of the temple. 1 Corinthians. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? Don't you know that? And definition, God's spirit dwells in your midst. But Paul goes further. If anyone destroys God's temple... If anyone tries to mess with God's people, the church, the temple, if anyone tries to break up the unity, the community of God's people, what happens? God will destroy that person. Why? For God's temple is sacred. God's temple is his dwelling place, it's his home. You don't mess with God's home. And you together are the temple of God. We are the temple of God, we are that place. Ephesians, consequently, you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now in this passage Paul's talking to the Gentiles and he says look look you guys you guys are also part of God's people you're fellow citizens you're naturalized citizens with the Jewish people and you're members of his household and guess what you're like a stone and you're being stacked on top of other stones. And all these stones are stacked on top of the, the, the prophets, the apostles and the prophets. With Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And all of us stones are stacked on top of each other. The whole thing comes together as the temple of God. Which, of course, is where God dwells with his people. Definition is always right there. Do you understand what's going on? For us, the temple is not made of stone. The temple is made of flesh and blood. We together, we're the temple of God. We together, we're the presence of God in this broken world. We together, we are the renewed garden of Eden. In us is God's presence. Unlike any other space, God is here with us. So what then is worship? Worship is a set time and place when the different pieces of the temple come together to form a greater whole. Now, this is really important, people, really important. When we gather to worship, we don't go to the temple, we bring a piece of the temple, and we come together and we become God's unique presence in this world. And I know some of you like to anticipate and you're thinking Charles are you really going to compare God's temple to Voltron? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> All right, this is one of the best metaphors for understanding temple, understanding the church, understanding the people of God. You see, okay, each line, right? Each line, five lines, each line is different. It's unique. Have their own capabilities, just like us. We're, we're made in the image of God. We have our own abilities. We have, we have our own will, own design. But when we decide to change and shift and come together and fit into one body, we form something amazing. We form the temple of God. We become the place where God is present in this broken world. When people see us, they go, "Well, God's over there. God lives with them, and I want to join in. That's what we're about. This is us, folks. The temple comes together. And at Black Hawk, as the temple of God, I think it's time we bring the pieces together. This past year living in COVID land, I think it's been kind of rough. It's, it takes time to get used to, right? I mean, one of the hardest things is getting used to worshiping online. And, uh, and let, me, let me just first say, I'm grateful for the technology because if this happened 30 years ago, we wouldn't be able to do this. But I just got to say, worshiping online is different. Um, it's my personal family story. When we first got started, we treated it like normal church. You know, we got the seats lined up. We're watching. We're, you know, we're getting there on time. And we're singing when the worship leaders are singing. Well, within a couple of months, we fell into a different routine. Uh, first off, we started doing on-demand. Because why would you need to start exactly on time? I mean, really, right? Uh, second... I'm in my PJs, I'm sitting in my sofa, my legs are propped up, and i got a bowl of cereal in my hands. And i got to tell you, it's really hard to sing when you're chomping through honey bunches of oats. <laughs> we stopped singing altogether. And the third thing, which is different, is that we started... Having little chit-chats. I mean, I mean, not a lot. We were paying attention. Like, we really were. We were paying attention. It's just that, you know, you, sometimes you make comments, right? Like, oh, interesting camera angle. Oh, haven't seen that shot before. You know, like, we're just kind of talking to each other because it's the four of us, a family. We're watching TV together, and that's what we do. And, uh, and I got to tell you, some really good times came out of this because after the video be over, we all sit in there, and we would just talk about the sermon or maybe even, you know, answer the question that, you know, they, they ask. And then we would share about our highs and lows, right? How did the week go? We had better quality family time during COVID than before. So it's not surprising that when we started to to, to worship in person, I asked my family, hey, do you guys want to come? And they all said no. They're like, not even close. like, no, no thanks. And I'm like, oh. And I got to tell you, okay, for me, that first day, it was kind of hard. It was really weird driving the freeway that's mostly empty. And I'm like, this is really, really challenging. I don't know about this. And then I got here to the atrium, and, and I see block started walking through that door and started trickling inside. And that feeling, oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, okay, it's nothing like the exile seeing the foundation of a new temple. Okay, and there's nothing nowhere near that, but it's along the same lines. It's about, hey, we're restarting again, and we're coming together again. I met people who are in tears in the atrium. Because it's just something amazing. It's, it's something absolutely amazing. It's, it's the pieces of the temple coming together. It's God's unique presence, and you cannot recapture that when you're at home. So let, let, me, let, me, let me just make something clear. First of all, First thing, we are absolutely going to continue to provide quality online worship. For those of you who don't live in Madison uh, and, or, or you're, when you're traveling for work or if traveling for whatever reason out of town, you can actually join us online in worship. That's number one. Okay? Nothing's going to change on that front. And second, we, we know that some of you, you have concerns. You have all kinds of concerns about this coming back together. You think that this is too quick or, or, that, or that, hey, you may have health issues or maybe you have children that are young and they're not vaccinated yet. And, and you're like, I don't want to bring them to church. We totally understand your concerns. And we want to encourage you to continue to worship with us online. So I guess my final encouragement is not even really directed at you guys. My final encouragement is directly at a very particular group of people, those of you who are watching right now and you don't have any concerns, you're just not here because it's inconvenient. I, I just talked to my sister. She lives in the West Coast, and, and she's like, and, I, and, I was, and they're, not open, they're not opening up yet at all. And, I, and I, asked, I told her about our plans to reopen, and she said, wow, right now I have a church in bed. I wake up, I click on, and I do church. How am I going to get used to going back in person? And I'm like, wow, church in bed? That sounds awesome. Why didn't I think of that? (laughs) So Believe me, okay, I get it. I was there two months ago. I totally get it. It took us a whole year to get used to COVID. It's going to take some time to leave. I get it. So in this series, we've been encouraging you to intentionally rebuild, to weave our values, our priorities into the fabric of our lives. And worshiping together with other people, with God's people, needs to be high on top of that list. And and I know it's hard. Building new routines, new habits, it takes energy, it takes time, it's just human nature. We totally understand. And I think for some of us, we've forgotten what we've been missing. And I think for many of you who are here, I think there's that moment who go, wow, I remember now why I'm here. I remember. Right? It's maybe that, that being in a room full of people together, singing as one, joined by the Spirit of God. Or maybe sensing people around us, a whole group, in the whole room, responding to the Word of God. Or maybe it's the conversation with, some, with a friend that just deepens the relationship and receiving encouragement. Or maybe just the children running around yelling, screaming, laughing. The sights and sound of the pieces of the temple coming together to be the, God's presence in this broken world. Next Sunday will be the first Sunday without a reservation. I want to encourage you, those of you who are not here yet, bring your piece to the temple and come back and join us. Let me pray for us. Father, you, this is your thing. We couldn't possibly dream of such a thing, of being the temple. We wouldn't dream of making that claim, but this is your thing. You have made us a sacred place, a sacred people. You have turned us into, this, into your home, your dwelling place. And, and we, It's an honor, it's a privilege, we know it also comes with responsibilities. And so what we want, Father, is we want it when we gather to worship with our hearts, mind, and soul, and when we're, even when we're not with us to get, when we're together, that we're also engaging with you. We want to know you better. We want to love you because you first loved us. We give you praise and thanks. In Jesus' name.